Lord? Okay, that's working. It's good to be with you again today, New Life Church. Uh, today, I'm a little jacked up. I'm one-legged. My wife is not with me today. That's my rib. She is actually in Florida. Uh, some of you know that her sister passed away in December of last year, and the family's actually having a memorial service for her today. And so uh, please, if you can remember, keep my wife in prayer and her family as they go through that today. Today, we're going to continue to look at uh, the idea of God's church Christian community on mission. Again, today, I'd love it if we could stand together as we prepare to read the Word of God. Today, we'll be coming from Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. It's on the board, um, the Great Commission. Uh, it's in the NIV. If you have another version, just look at the board. Uh, but let's read. The Word of God, let me turn to it. So let's read together. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Today, again, under the rubric of last week as well, we're looking at God's church, Christian community on mission, but the particular title for today's message is God's Missionary Imperative, Make Disciples. Make Disciples. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your church. We thank you that your direction for the church doesn't change because it's the 21st century or it's the United States or anything else, but your directive for the church never changes. The way we do some things may change, but you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you long to bring a people to yourself, in which and through which the name of Jesus Christ will be lifted up and glorified. So, Lord, I pray that you'll use this little time that we're together today to lift up that name, even Jesus the Christ, our Lord and Savior. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I wonder how many people in this room know the name Dora U. Dora U. My guess is probably not many people know Dora U. Now, I know we have some little ones in here, and let me just tell you, Dora U went to various places, and we could even say she explored various places. But 
I have to tell you, young people especially, it's not Dora the Explorer. That's not who Dora Yu is. Dora Yu was a woman in China at the beginning of the 20th century who was used in mighty ways by God. She was trained as a medical doctor in Western medical practice, and she used that in her mission practice both in China and in Korea. God used this woman in significant and profound ways. But she was also an evangelist. And as an evangelist, God used this woman that many, many, many people came to Christ through her ministry. And one person who came to Christ through that ministry, you might know, some of you, I'm sure, will know the name Watchman Nee. Anyone know the name of Watchman Nee? Amen. So Watchman Nee became one of the great evangelists, church planters, and writers in Christianity in China in the early part of the 20th century. He spent the last years of his life, the last 20 years of his life, in prison. But God used this man in mighty ways. But when he got saved in 1920 at this revival and gave his heart to the Lord, his desire, his deep passion was to reach others with the gospel. He was a student at the time, and he wrote this. He said, immediately, I started putting right the matters that were hindering my effectiveness and also made a list of 70 friends to pray for daily. He says, some days I would pray for them every hour, even in class. And when, the, when opportunity came, I would try to persuade them to believe in the Lord Jesus. He says, with the Lord's grace, I continue to pray daily. And after several months, all but one of the 70 persons were saved. Isn't that beautiful? That, that's a powerful testimony to God. But brothers and sisters, I want to tell you this as we look at this uh, section of Scripture today. Convinced Christians are contagious carriers of Christ's love. Convinced Christians are contagious carriers of Christ's love. It, it catches, amen? Because God wants to infect other people with the love of Christ. He wants to make his, main, his name known in the earth. And today, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture, we've already read it, that's known as the Great Commission. It's God's call through Jesus to make disciples of all nations. And you might ask the question, well, why is that so important? Why is there a missionary imperative? Brothers and sisters, the reason for that is simple. The reason it's an imperative that Jesus gives to every disciple, not just in the first century, but the 21st century, is this, because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God wants to expand his family. God wants to adopt more kids. I know we got some adopters in this place. God and your heart as a family that wants to adopt 
wants to give a child who may not have a home, a home where they will be loved and nurtured and cared for, and they will be in a place where their gifts can flourish. Our God is a better adoptive parent than any of us. And he wants his family to grow and people to know the beauty of what it means to be a child of the living God. And so we're going to look at three principles today in these verses. Jesus' provision, Jesus' prescription, and finally Jesus' promise. So let's dig in and look at the first one. Jesus' provision, which is this, the revelation of Jesus' authority. That's in verses 16 through 18. Jesus' provision, the revelation of Jesus' authority. Now, I'm going to go backwards through these first few verses, and I want you to either look in your Bible very closely or look on the board at the last part of verse 18 in the quotes. And tell me if I'm saying this right. Does Jesus say here, all authority in heaven and on earth will be given to me? Is that what he says? No. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You see what Jesus is saying here, I love this, before he ever gives a command to his disciples, before he ever gives them this missionary imperative, first of all, he tells them, look y'all, all authority belongs to me. It's all mine. I am the almighty king of the universe, and I'm not just chilling until I come back again. He says, right now, I am on the throne. I am God of all. Jesus is saying, before he gives this imperative, he is saying to his disciples, yo, bro, I got your back. Sister, I got your back. I can back up whatever I'm about to say, and I, can, I have the authority to help you in whatever way you need now. I've got that for you now. Sometimes in this world, it doesn't look like that. Can somebody say amen? Sometimes it doesn't feel like the God of the universe is on the throne. It feels like he abdicated his throne and there's some other ruler, there's some other power, there's some other authority that has somehow overcome the God of the universe. But brothers and sisters, that's simply not true. Let let, let me give you an illustration from the scriptures. In 2 Kings chapter 6 is the story of the prophet Elisha. He was uh, the one who inherited the prophetic mantle from the great prophet Elijah. And the prophet Elisha was being used by God. The Aramean, the, the kingdom of Aram and the king of Aram was sending raiding armies into Israel. And God would reveal to Elisha exactly what he was doing and where they were going. And so the kingdom of Aram got angry and said to those around him, somebody here is a spy, somebody's lying, and somebody's about to lose their head. But they told the king, they said, no one here is a spy, but there is a prophet in Israel. And they said, there's a prophet in Israel, and even the conversation you have in your bedroom, he knows every word you're speaking. The king was not happy about that. 
he says, well, if that's the case, we're going to get this dude. And so what he does is he sends the entire army of Aram down into Israel. Elisha is in the town of Dothan, and the army of Aram surrounds the place where Elisha is. And early in the morning, Elisha's servant goes out and looks, and he sees chariots and horses all around them, bent on one thing, Elisha's destruction. But look what Elisha says in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. He says to his servant, don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may be, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You see, the enemy had chariots. Yes, the enemy had horses, but God had more and chariots of fire are no joke. And so God was revealing the unseen realm to the servant of Elisha, something that Elisha had already himself seen. Brothers and sisters, do you know that in the unseen realm, God has enough for you? He's got more than enough for you. Now, it's interesting that this word that Jesus uses here for authority is also used of demonic powers and demonic forces. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, the scripture says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against powers of wickedness in the heavenly places. Yes, evil authorities are real. Demonic powers are real. But Jesus says in this verse, All authority has been given to me. And so what he's saying to you and to me is demonic power. Is it real? Yes. But it is on a God-designed leash. And when Jesus says, stop right there, the enemy and all the demons in hell can't go one inch further. The power of Jesus Christ poured out on his church is greater than any power of the enemy. But let's continue to look. Let's go to verse 16 here. Scripture says in verse 16, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Stop right there. They went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Now, Jesus had not met with these eleven men post-resurrection in Matthew's gospel. So they hadn't heard the word directly from Jesus. They actually heard the word from the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection, which were women. And the women who saw Jesus went back to the disciples and they told Jesus, they told the disciples, listen, Jesus wants to meet you at this mountain in Galilee. And so what happens is the disciples go there. Listen, Jesus authority is revealed as the disciples walk in obedience to him. You see, they went where Jesus told them to go, and it's in that place 
that Jesus reveals his authority to them. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 says, when they saw him, they worshipped him. Some doubt it. Oh, brothers and sisters, I can't tell you how much I love that verse. Here we see that the, the, the doubting disciples decide to worship Jesus Christ. Doubting disciples make a decision to worship Jesus Christ. I want to say to anyone and everyone in this place, you're not disqualified by your doubt. Amen? You're not disqualified by your doubt. The reality is that every believer has doubts at times. No one has made it through from salvation to glory and never struggled with doubt at some point. You may struggle with doubt, but what they do in the midst of their doubt is make a decision to worship in spite of their doubt. Listen, it's hard to find. If you go through the Bible and read the stories of men and women of God, if there's much written about them, you will see that there are different times of crisis in different people's lives where doubt manifests itself in different ways. Christian, you should not be surprised that doubt may come your way. You're not more able than Abraham. You're not more dedicated than David. And you are certainly not more pious than Peter. We struggle at times with doubt. But look what happens when in the midst of doubt, God's disciples, Jesus' disciples, make a decision to worship. And, and, and we've got to get a hold of this word worship. It's not just they lift their hands and sang a Hillsong song. That's not what happened. The word worship here is a word that was used to connote in secular cultures bowing down in total submission to one who is greater. It meant kissing the feet of or the hem of the garment of the one who was greater. It meant complete dependence and submission to a higher figure of authority. When they worshiped, they just didn't sing a little song. They got themselves in a position to say, you are the greater. I am nothing without you. And so they worship. Listen, when you worship in the midst of your doubt, your doubt is transformed into faith, maybe even mustard seed faith, maybe just a little faith. Listen, you, 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 you don't have a place in standing before God because your worship is perfect or your faith is, is without issue, but it's because God loves you so much, he'll take that little seed of faith and worship even in the midst of your doubt and turn it into a beautiful thing. That is, first of all, Jesus' provision. He's given all authority. But secondly, we see Jesus' prescription in verses 19 and 20. I want to read those verses. Therefore, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the 
Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. In these verses, there's four different verbs, but there is one main verb. There is one main command. It is the prime directive of the Great Commission, and that is make disciples. That is the prime directive of the Great Commission, and it is the mission that Christ has his church on even all these centuries later. It is to make disciples. We can know that even as we read the scripture because all of the other three verbs in there, going and baptizing and teaching, they are in the original text, they are participles. And so, well, what does that mean, preacher? It simply means that they derive the force of their meaning from the main verb of the sentence, which is make disciples, and that is an imperative. And because that's an imperative, they get the imperatival force of that in those other verbs. Man, what is this dude talking about? He's talking about grammar. Hallelujah, grammar to the glory of God. Listen, what, what does this mean? This word make disciples has the idea of causing other people to become full followers who are willingly coming under the teaching and influence of Jesus. There's a Zambian theologian named Joe Capullo, and he says this, Jesus commands us to make disciples. It's on the board, not just converts. Discipleship demands a total surrender of one's identity, security, and being to the Lordship of Christ. Such surrender demands more than mere outward conformity to a religion. It must affect one's inner being. The task of converting nations means that we will have to address all that makes a people a nation, including the deepest elements of culture. Discipleship is the comprehensive project of Christ's church. Discipleship is what God is about until Jesus Christ comes again. And I love this. In Matthew's gospel, he says, make disciples of who? He says, all nations. Make disciples of all nations. That's interesting that Matthew, of all people, would say that because Matthew's gospel, more than any other gospel, is written to Jews, diaspora of Jews who are all over the Middle East, close to India and into Europe and into Africa. He writes this uh, gospel to reach the Jews, and we know that because of the way he, he writes the gospel, and he quotes the Old Testament more than any other gospel writer, and he's trying to reach the Jewish people, Israel, but at the climax of his gospel, he says, this thing just ain't for y'all. This is for all nations. Listen, God didn't hide that under a bushel basket. When he called Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis, he says, your blessing will be to all nations. All nations of the earth will be blessed for you. Similar language to what we find here. The people of Israel were never supposed to be the exclusive in the sense of keeping others out. They were exclusive in the sense of God revealing himself to them so that they could be a light to the nations. Isaiah 49 and 6. God wanted to save many through 
this nation, through this people, Israel. So in a minute, we're going to look at each of these three aspects of discipleship. But before I do that, I just want to look for a second about, well, what is discipleship and what is not discipleship? Let's look at that for a minute. First of all, discipleship is not necessarily church growth. A church can grow to hundreds. It can grow to thousands. A church can grow greatly, but no real discipleship is going on. Anybody get that? You can have a bunch of people that coalesce and come because their needs are getting met, because it makes them feel good, but no one is really growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not simply about, now I want, church, I want this church to grow. I want every church that proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ to grow. And we should want that, but we should not confuse the number of people in the building with how well discipleship is going. Discipleship is live surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Secondly, discipleship is not just more Bible studies. Brothers and sisters, we can study the Bible together. We, we can do that real good. And we can study and study and look at each other and disciple each other for five years, for 10 years, for 15 years, for 20 years, and we just keep talking about the Bible together. And boy, do we feel good when we do that. But the reality very often is that no one's really getting discipled. We're, we're, we can actually be coming spiritually constipated through our Bible study. Like, we're, we're, we're always taking it in, but we're never pouring it out. Who do we pour it out to? Titus 2 says... We pour it out older men to younger men, older women to younger women. There is a flow of discipleship that happens. It's not just navel-gazing Bible studies between committed believers. It is people in the body reaching out to others in the body that need to grow in the body, and we help one another in that. It is practical gospel engagement of people in real-life contexts, not just in a classroom. Listen, discipleship isn't necessarily one-on-one -on -one relationships. Some people think, well, I want to be discipled. That means that I need two hours a week with the pastor of the church. If I don't have that, I can complain I'm not being discipled. Well, one of two things happens with that. Either the pastor has to aim to have the smallest church possible because he don't have two hours for everybody in the church, or he's got to get rid of his wife so he has more time for the church. I think that... One-on-one -on -one can be one way that discipleship happens, but it's not the normal way, not even in the Scriptures. We have to open our minds to see that discipleship is more than that one-on-one -on -one relationship. It is, point three here, a comprehensive, Christocentric church culture. In other words, all that we are doing strategically is built around making disciples of Christ. Sunday morning is a disciple-making time. Small groups are a disciple-making time. Ministry teams are a disciple-making time. Outreach is a disciple-making time. But more than that, discipleship isn't necessarily just a program. See, we can get in trouble 
when we have to look at everything as a program and say, how are we doing with this? It's a program. Everything's a program. But discipleship is a way of life. It needs to be both organized. Yes, we need structure. But it also needs to be organic. Discipleship comes through God-ordained relationships. You just don't go pick out some, if you're a dude, go out to some guys and say, hey, you're younger than me. I've been in Jesus for a while. Be my disciple. Follow me. You can do that. That's probably not going to work. There's no relationship there. So discipleship depends on forming relationships where you care about other people and they know you care. But it becomes not only the organized things that the church does, but it becomes the lifestyle of those who say, I want to download my life into some other young men, into some other young women, into some other people that want to grow in Christ. Lord, use me in that. That's what discipleship is. So let's look then at the three aspects of discipleship making that we see in these verses. I want you to repeat them after me. I'm going to say all three, and then I want you to say all three. Going, baptizing, and teaching. Going, baptizing, and teaching. Those are the three things that we see in the Great Commission that inform us about the way of discipleship. What does it look like? The first one is going. And he says, uh, in, in the NIV translation, it says, Therefore, go and make disciples. Now, there's really no word and that's in the original Greek there. So, literally, what it says is, therefore, going, make disciples. We could also translate it, therefore, as you go, make disciples. What am I saying? What is the Bible saying? Discipleship is not a stationary activity. It's not come to my classroom at, I don't know, 9.30 on Sunday morning just to pick a random time. That, that's not necessarily what discipleship is. Discipleship involves, first of all, going. It, it, it involves a commitment to go out from the place where you're comfortable, from the place where you're at ease, and to go in order to make disciples. Now, let me try to illustrate this the best way I can. And I'll start with a personal story, because I'm going to talk about coaching basketball, but I may have no street cred here about my basketball skills. This brother knows. (laughs) He knows. I, I have some skills in basketball, so... Let me just tell you four facts, undisputable facts about me and basketball. Number one, I played on my high school basketball team. Fact number one. Fact number two, I scored points per game as a high school basketball player. You know what I mean. Like Steph Curry scored 30 points per game. Pete Maravich, some old heads remember, Pete Maravich in college scored 44 points per game. I also scored points per game. Very, very similar to those two. Number three, Michael Jordan has the same birthday as me. 
February 17th, look it up. Now, here is the fourth indisputable fact about my basketball acumen. That same Michael Jordan who stole my birthday, that same Michael Jordan has never, and I repeat this for emphasis, he has never beaten me in one-on-one. Indisputable facts to let you know I know a little something-something about basketball. So listen, if you're playing basketball, if you're coaching basketball, and you never get out on the court, you never actually put on the uniform, you never touch the ball itself, but you're just telling people about basketball, but they're not on the court itself actually experiencing basketball, then you are at best a very poor coach and your team is going absolutely nowhere. You've got to be on the court. You've got to touch the ball. You've got to put on the uniform. You've got to get in the game in order to coach basketball. And discipleship is the same way. You can't score points from the bench. And there's no such thing in the Christian church as bench-warming disciples. God has a place for everyone in discipleship in his church. Let me ask you this question. Are you in the game? Where is your place? We'll talk about it some more later. Second participle is baptizing. He says... Baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is the sign of the covenant for New Testament believers, just as circumcision was in the old. It's a beautiful sign. And it's a more inclusive sign, even than circumcision was. Obviously, circumcision in the Old Testament was male circumcision, but now baptism is for males and females, for men and women, for boys and for girls. It's the inclusive sign that our sins have been washed away and that we now belong to the family of God through Jesus Christ. It's mind-blowing for me again that Matthew, who is steeped in the traditions of Torah and Judaism and Old Testament, Matthew doesn't say a word about circumcision, but he says, baptizing them. What is he getting at? He's getting at the fact that discipleship is bringing people who were excluded from, outside of, not a part of the covenant. And he's saying, we're not just going, but we're going with the intention of bringing these people into the covenant family of God. Baptizing them means bringing them into relationship, right relationship with Jesus Christ to become a part of his covenant community. And so we see that in this aspect of biblical discipleship, it also includes the element of evangelism, right? Because he's saying, go, who are these first century 11 believers? Who are they supposed to go to? They can't go to New Life Church because there ain't no New Life Church. There's no Epiphany Fellowship. There's no Calvary Chapel. There's no Methodists, Pentecostals, Presbyterians, or nothings, right? Who do they go to? They go to people who need to know that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's evangelism. And so actually, in this command of 
make disciples, it involves both evangelism and discipleship. We could call it evangelship, but I don't think that's going to work too well, so we won't call it that. Let's look. Well, one last thing on that. He says, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I love that. He doesn't say in the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Again, he is revealing the power of the unique God of the Bible who has, he has revealed himself from the beginning of Scripture to the end. The three in one, mighty God, one God in three persons, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptize them that they'll know this God, the one and only distinct and totally different from any other God on earth. This is our God. Now, lastly, he says, how do we make disciples? We make disciples through teaching. Read in verse 20, he says, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Teaching them to obey. Teaching them to obey everything. See, the idea of teaching in discipleship is not make sure that they memorize the ordo salutis, to use a good Presbyterian theological term. The idea of teaching here from Jesus to his disciples is not make sure they've got X number of scriptures memorized. The idea of teaching is not that they memorize catechisms, although all of these things are very helpful, but the idea is not get your jargon right, get your doctrine right, but the idea is get your life right. Now, doctrine has much to do in the Scriptures. In fact, it has everything to do with life. But he says, don't get it twisted. Don't stop that you know this. Come to a place where it so affects your heart that you're doing it. Eric Little, who was the famous runner, Olympic runner, I think 1924 Olympics, Chariots of Fire is a movie about his life. He was a committed believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and spent uh, much of his life after the Olympics as a missionary in China. He said these words. He said, you will know as much of God And only as much of God as you are willing to put into practice. You'll know as much of God and only as much of God as you're willing to put into practice. What is he saying? He says, true knowledge of God, not just facts about God, not just doctrinal positions, but knowing the loving missionary heartbeat of the God who weeps over your sin and dies in your place for salvation, this knowledge only grows as we walk in obedience to him. Growing obedience. That is what discipleship is about. We are being transformed more and more into the image and likeness of God. Teaching them to obey. Jesus said it this way, if you love me, do what? 
keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. So summary of discipleship, three things. Number one, discipleship is moving towards people that don't know Christ. That's going. Bringing people into covenant relationship with Christ. That's baptizing. If you just hit it a couple times, it should come up. And number three, it's helping people to grow in heartfelt obedience to Christ. That's teaching. And so Jesus gives this imperative command to the 11 disciples. Brothers and sisters, he gives the same command to me and you today. The last piece here is this. The end of verse 20, Jesus says, And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Not only Jesus' provision, not only Jesus' prescription, but also Jesus' promise. Jesus' promise. He says, I'll be with you. I'll be right there. I'm not leaving you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you to the very end of the age. It's interesting. What a blessing that this imperatival command that he gives, make disciples, is sandwiched between, first of all, his glorious provision that all authority has been given to me. And what he's saying through that is, I long to you, for you to walk in that authority. And it's sandwiched on the other side with this precious promise that I'm never going to leave you. I'll be with you to the very end of the age until I come back for you. I'm right there with you. Jesus is never over there. If you're a believer, he's right here. Oops, forgot I had a microphone on my chest. He's right there. There was a famous preacher in the 60s and 70s, named Reverend Ike. Anybody remember Reverend Ike? Now, Reverend Ike was a prosperity preacher, big time. And what he did was, through his ministry, profited off of mostly poor people. But he had a way about him. And one of the sayings that Reverend Ike would use was, you can't lose with the stuff I use. Listen, Reverend Ike said that in order to pilfer money from poor people. But Jesus Christ is saying to you and to me today, as believers in him, you can't lose with the stuff I use. He's saying that, and he's not saying that to say, if you do this, I'm going to give you riches beyond what you can imagine in this world. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that if you do what I say, that every person you come in contact with will be saved. I wish that was true, but it's not necessarily true. What he is saying is this, that if you will devote your life to making disciples, I will make you a fruitful vine. I'm the God who wants to save parents with unsaved kids as much as you labor in tears and in prayer over your children. God labors more. He loves better. He loves from eternity to eternity, and there is no break or, or, or issue with his love. It's perfect. God wants us to enter into 
this kind of love. Listen, let me conclude with this. Discipleship is the mission of the church. It's an imperative calling. Yes, it is. Not just for those 11 men in Matthew 28, but for every person that names the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So before I close, I want to give you a homework assignment. Are you ready for this? Four things. Just one at a time. Wait for me to say number two before you hit two. I didn't just say it now. Number one, ask God to show you one way that you can be more involved in discipleship. Ask God to show you one way. Listen, if you're a new believer, if you're young, if you're struggling in your faith, that might be that you need to seek out someone to help you, to mentor you, to help disciple you. You may need, God may be calling you to seek that out. If you are an older believer or someone that's more mature in their faith, it may mean that God is calling you to reach out to some other people, maybe even people outside of your comfort zone, that you can download your life into their life and see them grow in Christ. And for anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, it does mean that you need to share that faith with people that don't know him. In a loving way, we share our faith. But number two, not only ask God to show you, but also write it down. Write it down. Write it down. Put it in a place where you'll see it. Maybe you write it right next to Matthew 28 right here. Maybe you write it in your journal. Maybe you write it somewhere else. But write down what it is that you believe God is prayerfully calling you to do to be a part of discipleship. Number three, begin to daily ask for God's grace to do what you've written down. And then number four, put on your Nikes. Just do it. (laughs) Now, we don't do that well, right? We're going to still struggle. We're going to fall. We're going to mess up. But we have an attitude, God, I'm going to pray daily that I'm in the game. Not a bench warmer for discipleship, but I am going to score points per game as well. And that means that I'm in this thing and, and I'm about doing it. Here's my summary for the last two weeks. The church is God's community on mission. We draw near to one another. We draw near to the living Christ in order to be contagious carriers of the unconquerable gospel of Jesus Christ. To close with these words from Michael Spencer, he says, Jesus shaped spirituality. Here's Jesus say, believe and repent. But the call that resonates most closely in the heart of a disciple is, follow me. The command to follow requires that we take a daily journey in the company of other students. It demands that we be lifelong Learners, I love, Dallas Willard calls it apprentices of Jesus. And that we commit to constant growth in spiritual maturity. Discipleship is a call to me, but it's a journey of we. Brothers and sisters, the church is God's community on mission. What is your part 
in that mission. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you will do the work that you so desire to do in, through, and among your people. That you will unleash discipleship in your church that there will be no one that's on the sidelines, no one sitting at the end of the bench. But Lord, you will call each one into a specific place and you will grow us in that call of discipleship. I ask it, I pray it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. As the musicians come forward and the prayer team comes forward, we're going to close our service for today. And as the, as the prayer team comes, if anyone has something that they believe that God is doing some business in your life and you want to come forward here for prayer, we'll open up the altar now for prayer.